2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Taylor Swift evolved from teenage country sensation to pop superstar and now ranks among today's most versatile singer-songwriters. The Every Taylor Song Ever Fest features kids and young adults with illnesses, injuries, and disabilities performing every Taylor Swift song ever recorded. Later this hour, we'll hear why the Songs for Kids Foundation decided music by Taylor Swift would make the ideal backdrop for their upcoming festival. First, the influence of European art has shaped the context in which we see our world. From its marvelous statues, paintings, and architecture, European art throughout world history continues to delight, thrill, fascinate, and inspire generations. Rick Steves' Art of Europe is a new PBS series airing on WABE-TV, weaving centuries of visual art into an entertaining and inspiring story. The phenomenally popular travel host, Rick Steves, joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Lois,
3: it's a delight to be with you. Thank you.
2: Likewise. What inspired you to create this series specifically devoted to
3: art? Well, you know, I've been making uh, TV shows about traveling and culture for 30 years for public television. And um, I've always um, included a little bit of art in every one of our episodes. We've made 150 or so episodes over the years. But over the the, the decades, we've amassed such an archive. And it is such a fascinating story. And I've long wanted to put it all together in a six hour story um, that takes you from the prehistoric cave paintings, right up to the art of our generation. And it was a wonderful challenge for my staff and I to, to write this script It's, uh, And we finally got it done and it's a six hour miniseries. And um, for me as a tour guide, you know, that's my, my basic thing. I've taken people around Europe for ages on our bus tours. I know how rewarding it is for people to be able to see art in its context, to understand who paid for it and why. As you mentioned in that, in that lovely introduction, you know, it shapes our perspective in so many ways. And art tells us from where we've come and it, it helps us know where we're at and where we may be going.
2: Rick, how did you cover such a vast topic in six episodes?
3: Well, I'm not Ken Burns and I don't have 26 episodes, so I have to keep it really tight. <laughs> I kind of, I'm envious of Ken Burns, so he, cause he can take uh, as many hours as he wants, it seems like, but I think it's a good discipline to keep it tight. I wanted to make it something that was within the, um, just to give people a, a good basic understanding of art. Well, you know, why is Gothic such a big deal? What, what was revolutionary about uh, the Impressionist movement? You know, what is Cubism? These basic things. And uh, I know from my, my own experience, you know, if if you can understand what Gothic's all about before you step into that cathedral you'll excitedly nudge your partner and say, isn't this a marvelous improvement over Romanesque? (laughs) It's amazing what they could do 800 years ago. And to understand, you know, why did they do that? And how did they do that? For me, it's just a thrill. Plus it's flat out beautiful. I mean, the art, I've looked at this show so many times as we've produced it. And I just never get tired of looking at the beautiful Botticelli paintings and the beautiful you know, Van Gogh sunflowers and the beautiful Michelangelo carvings and the beautiful stained glass that survives. And to be able to share this, not just to collect a bunch of eye candy, but to give it meaning and to tell the story, that was our challenge. And uh, it just feels great to finally have it out. And the series is airing all over the United States. And for me, it's just it's sort of the, the pinnacle of a, of a lifetime of helping Americans better understand European culture.
2: Hmm. Why is Egypt, a country in Africa, included in this series about European
3: art? Thank you for that question. That was a, a big decision because, of course, it's not in Europe, but it was kind of in Western civilization. So I suppose a, a more complete title might be The Art of Western Civilization, and in our first hour, we track the art as it goes, you know, from megalithic, Stonehenge kind of culture, and then all of a sudden we have civilizations popping up, and it progresses from Egypt to Crete for the Minoans, and then to Mycenae, and then to Athens, as the torch of civilization kind of is passed ever more westward. And Egyptian art is just flat out beautiful and fascinating. So it's part of the story. It had an influence on Greece, which had an influence on Rome, which had an influence on us.
2: Rick, obviously this series is about European art, and you've devoted much of your career to exploring and guiding people through Europe. Are people of color featured in this series? Frankly,
3: not very much until the 20th century, except for the abuses against people of color in the age of exploration. And we talk pretty boldly about how Europe raped, pillaged, and plundered its way into dominance as part of the story. But this is a European story, and in the way Europe would enslave people, of course, is a big part of it. So the art that powered art in Spain and Portugal after the age of discovery that would be included but in the 20th century things become more diverse and more inclusive but until then it really was a world of of elites and uh, you know how the power structure goes and that has changed and that has evolved and we've been able to track it but uh, Kenneth Clark did a series that inspired me when I was young it was called civilization and really, it to be honest, it was European civilization, but that was before a more tuned in age. And today, nobody would call it civilization. You would call it European civilization if that was the focus. I wish I was an expert in more things, but my focus has been Europe. I've spent 100 days a year in Europe ever since I was a kid, and we call it art of Europe. So that's what this is. We learn a lot from it, and there's a lot to be ashamed of and there's a lot to be proud of, and we wove that story together.
2: That's a thoughtful answer. I thank you for it. Yeah, You touch on many historic points during the course of this series, from ancient Roman Greece to Baroque to the modern age. The dominant era in European art history we hear most about is the Renaissance. Why does... Da Vinci's painting of the Mona Lisa sum up the Renaissance for you.
3: You know, Lois, for me, the Renaissance could also be called humanism. And this is when mankind steps out of the darkness of the Middle Ages and has a confidence, a confidence they didn't have in those uh, difficult centuries before. And it's not a repudiation of God. But when you look into the eyes of David, you're looking into the eyes of Renaissance man. And and when I say man, I mean man or woman. And when when you look at that, you're looking at a new attitude, a new confidence. Again, not a repudiation of God, but a, a recognition that the best way to glorify God is not to bow down in church all day long, but to recognize the skills and the talents that God gives you and to use it with all the energy you have to make the world a better place and to live a more fulfilling life that's what i see when i look into the eyes of david you can look into the eyes of david and see a shepherd boy getting ready to slay a giant that's the bible story of course you can look into the eyes of david and you can see a symbol of florence rising above its more crude city-state neighbors in that political battle of city-states at the 500 years ago in, in 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 italy or you can look into the eyes of david and see something much broader The birth of the modern age, coming out of the Middle Ages. And literally, Renaissance means a rebirth, a rebirth to the greatness of classical age. And it really kicks off the modern age. I just love it. And, you know, as the series progresses, you know, the first hour covers maybe three, 4,000 years. The next hour covers 1,000 years. The next hour covers 1,000 years. At the fourth hour, the Renaissance just covers 200 years, 1400 to 1600. And that is an exciting story.
2: Oh, yes. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with travel educator and enthusiast. Rick Steves. Depictions of the Madonna and Child, even the inclusion of a Black Madonna, are seen numerous times throughout European art. Why is the subject of a Madonna and Child depicted by so many European artists?
3: Huh. Boy, that's a good question, Lois. I think there's always been a need for a sort of a female deity a symbol of fertility, a, a symbol of, of caring, uh, nurturing, compassion, and um, of course, through different religions and, and pagan myths and so on, you always have these fertility symbols. And then when Christianity became dominant, you no longer have a, a Venus that's worshipped, but you have a Mary figure that makes God more accessible. So I think that's the prevalence of um, the Madonna, and you see that right up right up to the modern age. My challenge as a teacher is to and as a tour guide is just to understand how many Madonnas and children a mortal tourist can enjoy before their eyes glaze over. You know, you need to you need to be select as a tour guide in, in how much beauty you you push on people. And if you can give people an understanding of why is this Madonna portrayed this way as opposed to that way and what was going on you know, and and this beautiful evolution of the ability of artists to do better and more beautiful work all the time. That's my challenge as an art teacher and a tour guide.
2: Rick, your book, Travel as a Political Act, begins with the premise that we can't understand the world without experiencing it. You even touch on topics such as good globalization versus bad globalization and world hunger. Uh, Please, please tell us more about your thoughts on the importance of travel as central to our understanding of the world.
3: You know, Lois, it's fun and interesting to get that question in the midst of a discussion of art. I, I love that because, you know, I think the pinnacle of why we travel is to gain a broader perspective and the most beautiful souvenir you can take home is a global point of view an appreciation that there are, we're 4% of the planet here in the United States and there's 96% out there and we can get to know the rest of the world through our travels and it just uh, it it just carbonates our existence it adds more colors to our palette when we realize that there's more than one right way to do things culturally and so on so I really, for me, my passion in teaching is to not help people avoid culture shock, but to see culture shock as a positive and constructive thing. When we travel, culture shock is the growing pains of a broader perspective. And people who manage to live their lives and travel only in ways that gives them no culture shock, travel is not a transformative thing for them. They don't. They miss the boat on the value of travel. I relish the culture shock that comes with my travels. And I find my most rewarding trips, as you would see when you read my book, Travel as a Political Act, are when I venture to places, in many cases, I'm not supposed to go, whether it's Cuba or Palestine or Iran or places that are in a crisis like Guatemala and Ethiopia and places that have a different faith. I'm born and bred and and steeped in a a christian culture i really enjoy going to a muslim culture or a hindu culture so all of this is the rough and tumble world of reality and you can choose you can choose reality or you can choose la la land i I joke that my mission with my hundred workmates here in seattle at uh, rick steve's europe is to equip and inspire americans to venture beyond orlando you know, I mean, Orlando's has two or three times, but you know, after that, you could try Portugal. It's it's not going to bite you. Now, from an from an art point of view, we can have the same kind of enrichment through our travels if we understand what we're looking at. That can be if we can understand what causes poverty. If that means what threatens democracy. If that means why there are uh, the impacts of wars or or how some societies are more just and equitable than other societies we can learn that as we travel and and we can bring that home and we can also learn from where we've come just by studying art and how societies have worked in the past and you know all through the ages art has had an agenda it's uh, generally has served as propaganda either for rulers or for rich people or for religious leaders you know we need to understand that in order to be more savvy and uh, we can learn a lot from it. And I've, I've always found the more you understand what you're looking at, the more enjoyable and rewarding it is. When it comes to travel, a lot of people look to me for budget tips. How can you get into the Vatican cheaper? Well, you can't. You're going to pay the same as everybody else when you go to those great museums. But if you bring in a little bit with you so you can appreciate what you're looking at, you have five times the joy out of that admission ticket.
2: Rick, I know you like to think of yourself as a teacher above all. Hearing you speak now, I'm thinking, uh, what about the title of travel evangelist?
3: Uh, Travel evangelist. I'll take it. Um, (laughs) I I love to uh, inspire people to reach out and uh, enrich their lives through travel. I'm evangelical about that.
2: There you go. You have been a good citizen, particularly in regard to your philanthropy. And I was hoping you would tell us a bit about what you've done to offset, if not reduce, the global footprint of your travel through your charities.
3: Yeah. Well, thank you, Lois. I'm blessed and fortunate and privileged to have a business and had the same business for 30 years and it's been successful and i'm sort of a workaholic i just eat and breathe and sleep my business and i love what i do i'm lucky i found my niche and i've i've made more money than i could ever consume and for me i get great joy out of what i call vicarious consumption you know i don't have any stockholders in my business so you know my stockholders are the organizations that we support philanthropically we've been the, the leading funder in building a senior center in my town we're building a second one now i've bought a 25 unit apartment building to house single moms and their kids i pay the rent for our local symphony orchestra <laughs> there's really? just all sorts of fun creative things i can do with the, with the money that we've made and i i love that now when it comes to ethical business i'm in travel and it is uh, you know we have to be honest that we love travel we don't want to be flight shamed out of it but we are major contributors to climate change, and um, it is not heroic, it's not something I brag about, it's just the baseline of ethical business, if you're a tour organizer like me, that you pay for your carbon and you can mitigate it. And I've read enough to know and trust that if you invest $30 smartly in carbon mitigation, you you become carbon neutral by flying to Europe and back, but you have to invest that smartly. We took 30,000 people on our tours this year, roughly, that was about a 1,000 Rick Steves tours around Europe. And we have a self-imposed carbon tax, lowest that we pay into a organ. We have our own little program called the Climate Smart Initiative. 30,000 people times $30 is $900,000. We rounded up to a million dollars. We have a portfolio of 10 organizations that we support with, on average, $100,000 each every year. And they are all working to help farmers in the developing world do their work while contributing less to climate change. This is a way that we can help farmers struggling in the developing world, and we can help them contribute uh, less to climate change. And it is so thrilling to see what what just a million dollars can do by supporting 10 organizations that are working really smartly to empower farmers, to have climate-smart agriculture and to take care of their forests and so on. And uh, the people who take a Rick Steves tour take it knowing that we are traveling in a carbon-neutral kind of way. Again, I don't brag about that. I just think it's a, a ethical thing for anybody to do. I wish our government taxed us to, on that so we could be honest about our carbon. But we have that self-imposed tax. And on my website at, at in the in the climate section, it says right at the top, if you're a tour organizer, steal this program. Don't credit me and use it. We need to get honest about carbon and travel.
2: An environmental evangelist in addition to the travel component, <laughs> Rick Steves, This has been a joy. Thank you so much for speaking with us about Rick Steves' Art of Europe.
3: Well, Lois, thank you so much. It's always a delight to talk with you. And uh, it's another example of how I really enjoy public broadcasting. This is that corner on the dial where we can respect people's intelligence and assume an attention span and bring them information that will broaden their perspective and help them embrace this beautiful world and all its diversity and beauty. So best wishes to you and to your listeners, and uh, thanks for giving me a chance to talk up our, our new art series that's airing all over the country, including on WABE on uh, public television.
2: The new PBS series Rick Steves' Art of Europe airs on WABE-TV Fridays at 4 p.m., and Saturdays at 2 p.m. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear why the Songs for Kids Foundation's upcoming festival plans to perform Taylor Swift's entire catalog. Amplifying Atlanta, this is W-A-B-E. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Taylor Swift evolved from teenage country darling to pop superstar and now ranks among today's most versatile singer songwriters. Her diverse style is why Josh Rifkent, the founder and executive director, of songs for kids decided Swift's music would make the perfect backdrop for their upcoming festival. The Every Taylor Song Ever Fest features kids and young adults with illnesses, injuries, and disabilities performing, well, Every Taylor Swift Song Ever Recorded. City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Knavey caught up with Rifkin to discuss this weekend's upcoming festival, and he began by explaining how their foundation uses music to help kids feel like superstars.
0: So with Songs for Kids, we're in our 16th year of Playing music, rocking out with kids with illnesses, injuries, and disabilities. And we're often bedside over a thousand times a year with kids in children's hospitals across the country. But we opened our Songs for Kids Center in 2018, which is a pretty magical place where kids and young adults through age 39 can come down. We're right by the Ferris wheel in downtown Atlanta, right by CNN Center. And families can come down and for free, absolutely no charge, kids get weekly music mentorship from our really extraordinary Songs for Kids music mentors. And at the Songs for Kids Center, we've got a full recording studio, stage, light, sound, everything you could dream of doing musically. Kids with disabilities and illnesses can take that journey with us.
5: Wow. So who are these mentors?
0: So they're really incredible individuals who are, are part of our program. They're actually on board as staff at Songs for Kids. And yeah, they go through our program in terms of what's needed for kids in our community, kids with disabilities, kids with illnesses. I think the empathy and really the energy that these kids deserve we have just the best people who come in and meet with a family and meet with a kid and depending on their skill set like the mentors we pair them up with what the kids want to do so if it's a, a a kid that wants to write some songs in the studio we bring in one of our awesome mentor engineers and producers it could be someone that wants to learn to sing on the stage and we have wonderful vocalists and singer songwriters who are part of the songs for kids team so we really make sure that the kids are getting kind of the the exciting care that they need to you know to really actually have a great experience here
5: yeah what is it about music that affects these kids like how how is the music used as therapy
0: it's so interesting because obviously there's so many ways to to reach somebody you know in this life uh, it could be a hug it could be anything it could be a smile laughter but there's something about music that just cuts through everything. I don't care what language you speak, where you're from, what you're going through. Music just is this incredible glue that, that just sticks people together in, in the most incredible way. So for me, in terms of this program, music is really just a conduit for us. I think sometimes people think that like, I personally, I do have a music background, but that I, I am I am not the world's greatest music lover. I just love how music can can do what we're doing. Can allow somebody to learn something about themselves and and learn they can be a performer, learn they can express themselves, learn that they can be cheered on and it's all through this medium of music. I just think that's very cool. I don't I don't know why, but it just cuts through everything.
5: That's so awesome. So why did you feel like it was important to to start something like the Songs for Kids Foundation?
0: I was always a musician, first of all. And I think to say not an incredible one is an understatement. Mm -hmm. I'll give myself a little credit. I always had enthusiasm. And, you know, I eventually transferred or transitioned from being a musician to being a music manager. And while I was a music manager, decided really that I was kind of hoping my purpose personally would be for something greater. Whatever that might mean to you, I felt like, there was a real power to bring people together and have music serve a greater purpose than for super talented artists per se. And this is just an exciting way to bring people together for a, for a cause. And, and my father is a, or was a surgeon for over 50 years and he was my idol. So I thought, okay, you know, if he's my idol what could I do to um, bring all of these elements together? Music. Him, medicine, you know, how can we, how can we do that in a way that would actually benefit people? This is kind of what, you know, we came up with and, you know, you don't have any idea when you start something, what it will be. In 2007, we did 17 hospital visits, but before the pandemic, we were finally doing over a thousand a year, you know, so big jump, obviously. And then with the center, the Songs for Kids Center, we're now, you know, serving, kids in sessions that are in the thousands every year. So it's unbelievable how many kids and young adults have been affected by the program. But honestly, it was just trying to do something cool and trying to do something with your skills, whatever skills you have to better the world. But it's a group effort. I mean, it's really the extraordinary people behind this thing, incredible mentors, incredible staff. That's what makes it hum. It's not me. It's exciting when you see other people and musicians come into the program and they get to be spectacular and learn that their music is not just about them playing at a bar or a club. They've now realized that they have so much more to give.
5: Wow. Yeah. So you guys do bring musicians to the children in addition to having them learn how to write songs and play drums and sing and perform on stage. You bring musicians to the hospital to sit with these kids, correct? And just play for them?
0: Absolutely. And they sing along and we're at their bedside and we really perform anywhere in the hospitals where the children's hospitals want us. You know, the children's hospitals are extraordinary places in and of themselves. So we're lucky just to take part in any way with what they do for the kids. It's nice to be you know, this exciting add-on, you know what I mean? But they they alone are, you know, these are incredible people. So we're lucky just to be a part of that. So it's exciting. You know, there's a lot of kids, for example, that I met and worked with in the hospital well over a decade ago, and they're now part of the Songs for Kids Center, learning and continuing uh, everything we did at the hospital. So it's really exciting to see many of our kids over a long period of time.
5: Yeah, and you you guys get big names, to come play for the kids. I saw like Grace Potter has come, Phoenix, a lot of big names,
0: right? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. We're pretty lucky. Um, <laughs> I'm lucky to have a lot of friendships with, with a lot of these people. And, and it's great to, to kind of color them into the festivities. It's cool. It's cool to turn them on, you know, to have friends kind of in music, who are very successful in their own right for years to kind of come and see what we do. You know what I mean? I kind of, we become the leaders of what's going on when they come to visit us. And I think they're honored to take part. And that's kind of nice. You know, they might be used to playing in front of 20,000 people at night, but when they come to the, to our center, they're the guests, they're the visitors, and they kind of get to learn this musical magic that's happening, which is kind of fun.
5: Yeah, yeah. Very, very fun. So your event this weekend is called Every Taylor Song Everfest. So what is
0: that? So this weekend is Every Taylor Song Everfest. And... We love putting on just really massive, super complicated events. And we just love to dream up stuff that that brings people together. And this one is no exception. Every Taylor Swift song Everfest, it's going to be over a hundred of the kids in our program performing every single Taylor Swift song of all time, which right now sits at about 194, I believe. And the kids have been practicing and rehearsing for months with their mentors And I I think it's gonna be an absolutely, it's kind of an indescribable celebration. And and it's just the collection of kids and young adults, I'm talking unbelievable performers. And it's really for us allowing these kids to be stars. And why shouldn't they be, you know? Uh, So this event is going to be showcasing the best of the best. And I really hope people will come out and support this. Not everything is about supporting Taylor Swift herself. Yeah, she'll sell over 100,000 tickets when she comes into town next year. But I really think if you don't come to this event, you're missing out on the best Taylor Swift ticket. I'm going to go ahead and say it. You're going to see some absolutely remarkable performances. You're going to see hard work, and you're going to see – I know I'm very excited. I'm a pretty excitable person, but I'm telling the truth here. This is just going to be fantastic. And I think beyond the families and friends of, for example, Songs for Kids and the families, uh, the kids who are performing, I think everyone should come out to this and cheer these kids on and sing their favorite Taylor Swift songs along with them. This is going to be a historic festival. I simply don't believe there's ever been anything like this in the world, a festival like this. And I think it's... um, it's game-changing festival.
5: Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. So why did you choose Taylor Swift?
0: Her music just, it just spans the gamut. First of all, of, of all styles, you'd kind of be surprised from her early country career mm-hmm. to honestly, a lot of like, you know, syncopated beats and, and, and electronic stuff to, I mean, she's got some darker stuff she has explored, some lighter stuff, a lot of themes. I mean, she just runs the gamut musically, melodically, it's perfect for it's. It's honestly been an incredible journey for our kids to dig into all of this stuff. Honestly, I mean, I don't know if there's anyone better to represent. And this could be the inaugural Every Sailor Song Everfest because it's just. You know, taking this journey with her music makes a lot of sense. It's just been perfect.
5: Yeah, and I, I don't think she's going to stop writing songs anytime soon. Well,
0: so well hopefully you... she doesn't write too many in the next year. She's making it <laughs> complicated. She just added 20 songs uh, last week, which is, you know, we're working very hard over here. Yeah, she should have asked us if she wanted to add 20 more songs to her catalog at the last minute right before our event. <laughs> and we'll see if she even knows about it. I'm not sure if she knows about it yet. That That's something that will we'll probably come to light in the next week. Maybe I was going to be- ask you that if she knew, you know, uh, I I don't think so yet. We'll see. I think we I think we need to start letting her know. Yeah, um, she's a busy person, but this is a pretty special event, and you would think she'd learn about it and be excited about it. I would be excited about it if people were doing all 194 of my very poor songs in my catalog. <laughs> I would I would be thrilled, believe me. I think she should be honored personally, and we'll we'll see we'll see what she says about it. Yeah, um, definitely. <laughs>
5: And so the kids perform at different events. You guys performed at uh, Shaky Knees earlier this year? Absolutely.
0: We do that every year, absolutely. We have great performances at festivals. You know, we open for a lot of bands. You know, the pandemic obviously stopped a lot of stuff. But we'll open for a lot of artists like, you know, the Revivalists and Lord Huron and uh, Grace Potter and and many more. It's nice to get back to the action now that people are are going out again. So I think you'll see a lot of that, us performing all around, but this festival is just going to be an unprecedented concentration of awesome performances. I mean, this is 14 hours of music over two days. Hmm. Wow, that's can you that's... tell I'm excited? Can you tell I'm excited? I can. T- I can t- um, tell. It's incredible to watch. You know, I'll be in my office, and some at this point. People are now rehearsing in four different rooms. I mean, the songs are all bleeding together now because we have so many rehearsals going on at once in our space. You know, I'll be playing keyboard and singing The Archer with uh, Antonio, one of our amazing kids. And meanwhile, on stage, someone will be doing Shake It Off with Jacob. And then in the studio, we're prepping someone for stage who's working on a, a song from 1989. It just never ends. They're, they're, it's all happening at once now, the rehearsals. Just unbelievable. And on our Instagram page, you know, at songs for kids, we're literally posting like every six hours, you know, all these rehearsals going on. It's just unbelievable.
5: Wow. Do you guys still do the 500 songs for kids?
0: Yeah, so we still put on that event as well. And that's at kind of music venues around town. And that involves literally all of the music community here coming out. You know, if you strum a guitar and you play, I don't care uh, if you're in a band or you play solo, but that's for usually in April and May. And every musician in town, we usually have hundreds of musicians come out and support during that event as well. So A lot of events happening, all to raise money for our programs. And and again, our programs are completely free. In 16 years, we've never charged a family a penny. And they families come into my office and they say, okay, what's the charge? I say, you know, there is no charge. Like, it's really an incredible thing and it's incredibly expensive. And that's why I hope people will sponsor the event. You can still sponsor a song. We're trying to get all of the songs sponsored. So if you're a family listening right now, you can sponsor one of Taylor's songs at the event and we'll... We'll put your name up there and I'll talk about you on stage. So there is plenty of room to support this event and to support songs for kids. And again, it all goes to this free programming that these kids get. Josh Rifkind,
2: founder and executive director of Songs for Kids, speaking with City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Knavey, the every taylor song ever fest is this weekend november 12th and 13th at monday night garage more information is on our website w a b e dot citylife It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Art, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words.
4: My name is Gretchen Wagner. I have a background in textiles and printmaking and identify as an artist and designer. I'm currently an MFA candidate at SCAD Atlanta in painting. My work is focused on color and rooted in theory. For the last year, I have been developing a method of relief printing where I laser cut my plates to ensure precision and modularity. In the printing process, I work with predetermined color schemes that will generate complex color interactions. After printing, my work is sewn with a matrix of glass beads. The embellishment, in addition to the overlapping layers of color, impede the eye's ability to deduce the true identity of a single color in each print. One of my earliest memories playing with color was on the concrete stoop in my parents' backyard. I had my mom's empty ball jars that she used for peach jam in the summer months, a pitcher of water and a box of McCormick's food coloring. In my makeshift outdoor kitchen, I had my intro to color theory where I would mix my own concoctions from a minimal palette of red, yellow, green, and blue. Food coloring eventually became dye on fabric as I studied fibers in my undergrad and has now become ink on paper while I'm studying my master's in painting and printmaking. I seek out studio spaces that function like a lab, precise, clean, and controlled. This sets up my work to become the results of color experimentation. My creative process is informed by the scientific method. I hypothesize, develop an experiment, conduct that experiment, and then observe and analyze the results. The print shop is one big chemistry experiment. You're mixing color, you're exploring the viscosity of your ink, analyzing the pressure on your press, and just problem solving in the moment. In some ways, it feels like I'm still 12 years old making the most grotesque colors on the back steps of my parents' house in Connecticut, except my materials have become a lot more expensive. I'm inspired by the discrepancies in how we perceive color and am therefore really influenced by the combined works of Joseph and Annie Albers and their impact on the overlapping fields of art, design, and craft. I'm currently pursuing my MFA in painting at the Savannah College of Art and Design, Atlanta campus, located in the heart of Midtown. The community and collaborative nature of working alongside students and faculty is integral to an inspiring and creative practice. I love a good gallery opening. The hum of artists, collectors, and gallerists talking about great work in combination with the lightheaded buzz from a before dinner glass of champagne is just perfection. Some of my favorite places to look at contemporary art in Atlanta are Spalding Nix, White Space, Atlanta Contemporary, and Kai Lin. I recently saw a great student exhibition at Wadi in Inman Park last spring, and have also visited Wolfgang Gallery's space on the west side for their inaugural exhibition Virgo, which was incredible, to say the least. You can see my work and collaborations in person at SCAD Atlanta and virtually via Studio Gretchen Wagner on Instagram and the web.
2: Artist and designer Gretchen Wagner. More information about Wagner's work is on our website, wabe.org/slash/citylights. Coming up, Emory curator Randy Gu helps us redefine graffiti as aerosol art, amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrightsus. Thank you for listening. The graffiti art scene in Atlanta is tremendous, though it comes with controversy. Under Georgia law, Graffiti is a form of vandalism created without consent. So what defines graffiti art versus vandalism? A new exhibition at Emory University's Rose Library investigates the culture, aesthetic, and historical phenomenon of the medium. Graffiti... A Library Guide to Aerosol Art is on view through January 23rd. Randy Goo is the Assistant Director of Collection Development and Curator of Political, Cultural, and Social Movements Collections. He joins me now via Zoom. Randy, welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. When did graffiti and street art become popular around the country?
1: Well, there's two separate things there, graffiti and street art. People in the communities view those as two separate things. One being graffiti, which the community calls writing, is focused on letters, typography, and uh, street art privileges images over words. And so there's a kind of difference there. But when folks in the country really became aware of what was called subway art at the time, it was in the late 1960s and early 1970s, born in New York City, part of one of the four pillars of hip hop.
2: Well, so then the exhibition on view at the Rose Library is, Graffiti writing rather than street art? That is
1: correct. You
2: got it. Okay. How is graffiti a communicative tool for protesters and activists?
1: Well, one of the interesting things is that it's a giant conversation that goes on all over the country. I was walking close to some rail lines recently, and a gentleman was walking his dog, and he said, why are you taking pictures of that? It's just vandalism. And I was able to point out to him that it's actually a form of communication. And when you're talking about freight trains, that's a form of communication that runs all over this country. And ever since NAFTA in 1993, runs into Mexico and up into Canada. So, It's a way for people who feel like they don't have a voice and for communities who are invisible to, as the graffiti writer named Apache in Chicago told me, to scream, I am still here. And so I was able to show this gentleman that some of the tags up there had dates when they were done, place names when they were done, the monikers and other things have this so that it's people talking to each other and other people in these mobile canvases, if you will.
2: And at what point did graffiti gain recognition as a form of artistic self-expression rather than a way of defacing property? Does that also date back to the 60s?
1: That's still an ongoing battle. People still are arrested for writing. But it was really in the 1980s in New York City when you started to see a movement into galleries and things like that, writers taking their art from the streets into the galleries. But it's still, it's still a process. It's still a process underway. If you see photographs of graffiti writers um, who are still practicing, most of them will have their faces covered because they still trespass to write. <laughs>
2: But you mentioned there are some who have taken their work into galleries. Is that the only way to monetize their work? or do they not care about monetizing their work?
1: The um, writing community is fascinating because they care about the history and the culture. They're all very aware of the history of graffiti. That's one of the reasons why they really enjoy the photographs of Jack Stewart that are in the exhibition. But um, most of them do it for the love of writing and the love of the culture, and they do not do it for money. They do it for recognition in the style of what they do to be accepted by their peers, but they're not motivated in that kind of a way.
2: Hmm. You mentioned Jack Stewart. Would you describe his photographs, along with those of H.J. Parsons, whose work is featured in this exhibition?
1: Sure. Uh, Jack Stewart was a fascinating guy. He was born and raised here in Atlanta, so he was born in 1926. Um, He started taking art lessons at the High Museum when he was 10 years old in 1936 in his collection, We actually have drawings that he did at the High Museum. We have soap sculptures that he did at the High Museum when he was a child. And it was obvious from the beginning. He was very talented. So he is a very accomplished artist living in New York City. He became the vice president and first provost of RISD. Oh, And at the time, they suggested to him that he needed to do a dissertation. And so he said, Fine, I'll do it on graffiti. So he went out and photographed every other weekend for a couple of years, art that he found on subway cars uh, right at the beginning, the birth of subway graffiti from like 1972 to 1979. And because he was an artist, he tried to photograph them in ways that were similar so that you could compare their aesthetic qualities. And so he actually wrote his dissertation about graffiti. And members of the writing community consider his dissertation the Bible, if you will. That's what they call it, the Bible.
2: So here you have this high-achieving academic. You mentioned vice president. Was he provost also at the Rhode Island School of Design? He was. Who is taking graffiti seriously as an art form. And I'm thinking of your academic appointment and stature in this storied collection at the Rose Library. Randy, what inspired you to create this exhibition for Emory?
1: Over the past several years, Emory University has acquired several significant, notable photograph collections about graffiti. One is the Jack Stewart papers, and the other is the digital photographs of H.J. Parsons. And everyone I mentioned the collections to had the same reaction. They were very excited about the graffiti materials. But they were also surprised that Emory and the Rose Library would be interested in a subject like that. So, you know, after I explained that, of course, Emory was interested in what the French stencil artist Bleck Lerat called the biggest art movement in the world, which is graffiti. You know, it's the only art movement in the Western world created by children. All these folks were under 18. And so... It got me thinking that people have expectations about what academic libraries have and don't have, and so I wanted to use this exhibition, which is about graffiti and gets people very excited, but that people are surprised that we have. And I did a little research, and it turns out we have over 200 books here at the library about graffiti, graffiti writers, and street art. We have movies, we have zines in our collection about graffiti. So my purpose was kind of twofold. One, to show that graffiti is an important historical, cultural, and aesthetic phenomenon, but then also to kind of broaden people's ideas of what libraries collect and what they're interested in.
2: Hmm. That is a wonderful way of your reaching out to a larger audience. Now, you pointed out the important differences between street art and graffiti. I'm hoping you can help me a bit more with the vocabulary because I want to get it right, Randy. Graffiti artists prefer to be known as writers and not artists. Where does aerosol art come in?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, there's... The writing community defines graffiti as a term applied to writing by those who do not do it. (laughs)
2: Okay.
1: So I I learned that the hard way. So I asked them, okay, I know you like writing and you don't like graffiti. What else can I use when I'm talking about this? And so style writing is one of their preferred terms. And then they also said aerosol art. So those are kind of... More cogent ways to talk about it instead of using the G word, if you will.
2: Randy Gu, Emory's curator of political, cultural, and social movements collections, "Graffiti: A Library Guide to Aerosol Art," is on view through January twenty third at Emory's Rose Library. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Cuban-American jazz trumpeter, pianist, and composer... Arturo Sandoval stops by ahead of this weekend's Atlanta performance at the Rialto. City Light's senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavi. I'm your host, Lois Reitzis, and you can follow me on Twitter at L O I S. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WAPE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more...